Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. Today's guest is Zach Penn, best known as a screenwriter on several big-budget superhero movies like X-Men 2, X-Men The Last Stand, The Incredible Hulk and The Avengers. Zach also wrote the 1993 comedy Last Action Hero starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and he directed a wonderful mockumentary called Incident at Loch Ness in which he, together with German director Werner Herzog, ventures out to find the Loch Ness Monster. My conversation with Zach focuses on his work on Steven Spielberg's 2018 sci-fi movie Ready Player One, which Zach adapted from Ernest Klein's novel by the same name. The story is set in 2045 and revolves around a virtual reality world called the Oasis, which is largely based on the pop culture of the 1980s, recreating early video games, cult movies and the pop music of the decade. The story follows a teenager named Parzival and his friends and their quest to find and solve a series of hidden clues and puzzles, so-called easter eggs, hidden within the Oasis by its late creator, a Steve Jobs-like figure by the name of Jim Halliday, who promised that whoever solves his game will gain complete control over the oasis. Along the way, Parzival falls in love with a girl he meets in the oasis named Artemis, receives a little help from Halliday's former business partner Arkton Morrow, and he fights the so-called Sixers, an army of treasure hunters led by the evil Nolan Sorrento, whose company IOI seeks control over the oasis for commercial gain. In our interview, Zach discusses how he adapted Ernie Klein's book and how certain choices and changes were made to make the story more cinematic. He talks about the characters and the pop culture that informs the story, and he discusses how one of the movie's best scenes came about, a segment where the characters enter a recreation of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining in order to solve a puzzle. Zach also talks about his 2014 documentary Atari Game Over, which was in many ways a precursor to his work on Ready Player One. It's the story of digging up the infamous Atari 2600 game E.T., which was buried in a landfill in New Mexico. And it features not only several themes which are connected to Ready Player One, but it also stars Ernie Klein as one of the protagonists. The interview with Zach Penn was conducted in connection with our German-language podcast Lichtspielplatz, so if you speak German, please visit www.lichtspielplatz.at and check out episode number 46, which features an in-depth discussion of Ready Player One. If you enjoy my conversation with Zach Penn, please visit www.talkingpicturespodcast.com to check out our other episodes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So without further ado, here's Talking Pictures with Zach Penn discussing how he became involved with Ready Player One. I was sent, uh, I think, galleys of Ready Player One before it came out. And my assistant at the time, well, he wasn't, he wasn't my employee at the time, uh, this guy, Mike Shamoy, read it and said, you should really look at this. This would be a good thing for you to do. And it had been offered. Uh, I think it had been offered or it was going to be offered. And I, I read it and, you know, I really loved the book, but I thought this is not makeable in its present form. I mean, how, who could make, who could direct a movie like this and get all the clearances. So I kind of let it drop. And then when I got hired to do the Atari documentary, which was just, you know, it was a lunch meeting I had um, where they proposed, the, whoever it was at Xbox, I forget now, said, hey, we're making a documentary about digging up the ET game. I was like, I'm in. She's like, well, it's very low budget. I was like, I'm in. That's what I want to do next. So I went off to do that. And very quickly, it became apparent that, you know, Ernie Klein would be the perfect person 
to be a talking head in this uh, movie. And then, you know, we were already planning. I mean, other people had already planned and done the research on Atari Game Over on where to, you know, the ET games, the supposed ET games were buried in the New Mexico desert. So when we announced that we were going to dig it up, which had already been in, you know, in play, Ernie decided to do a pilgrimage. So we ended up, while we were making the documentary, I got offered the job of rewriting Ready Player One. And partly because I was so steeped in, you know, going over my, you know, I was in a documentary, obviously you do all this research and you get steeped in the period and it was my childhood. You know, when it came back to me again, I was like, you know what, what the hell, I'm gonna do this. And it was just a coincidence. And when I finally, you know, Ernie heard about it, obviously. So when we finally met, um, it was just, it was just kind of funny. We were just laughing about, we ended up talking a lot about the movie and how to adapt it. Um, you know, he was not, the previous draft had gone in a really different direction um, for budgetary reasons, I think. So, you know, I had kind of a pitch on it that was much closer to the original vision he had. But mostly we became fast friends just over being in the desert to get, you know, you go into the desert and dig up a bunch of things from a, a garbage dump and you grow close to people. Um, um, but, but we ended up having a lot of discussions and as soon as the movie was over, I started working on a rewrite. That's how it all came about. I mean, Donald DeLine was the producer who called me directly, who's a friend of mine. And I just happened to, you know, I actually, truth be told, Warner Brothers owed me money from a project that I had done a number of years before. Um, I don't know if this is more business detail than you want, but one of the things in Hollywood is often when a project gets canceled or if they decide to move on to another writer, they settle you out and they pay you some of what they owe you. And I had never, I'd, I'd never had that happen. And I said, I don't really want you to pay me for something I haven't done. Why don't we just agree that the steps that you owe me will find something to do at some point and you can just pay me then. And that was 10 years or something. No, maybe it was eight years before they ever sent me anything I, I mean, that I liked. So it was a really easy deal. I just said, they said, we just want you to take a whack at one draft. And I said, sure, pay me the money you owe me. And they were like, that's great. It was a good deal for them. And, you know, the rest was history. Wrote one draft. They sent it to Steven Spielberg without telling me, um, you know, and next thing you know, we're off to the races. So what did the script look like when you came on board? Well, there had been a couple of drafts. I mean, Ernie had written in the original draft, which was very, I'd say very, very faithful to the book, you know, which, you know, Ernie even said to me, one of the things that's good about actually calling the people whose work you're adapting and becoming friends with them, whether they are novelists or screenwriters that you've been hired to rewrite their script or whatever, you know, it's not, you know, I'm a big believer that you owe it to the person who stared at the blank page to go and talk to them particularly if you're being paid well to rewrite them. Um, and that's partly from my own experiences at the opposite end of it, but it's partly, I just think it's the right and smart thing to do. So I had a lot of discussions with Ernie about, and you know, his first adaptation, you know, just didn't work for him. He just felt like I couldn't pack it all into a doable length. Uh, the next iteration was actually a perfectly good script by this guy, Eric Deason, but it was so, 
different. It was much more of a thriller and it was an attempt to make it as a, a 40 or $50 million movie. Um, so, you know, I just kind of went back. They said, just write whatever you want it to be. And I said, okay, I'm just going to write this giant movie then and hope you guys can figure it out. And, uh, you know, from Ernie's point of view, that meant bringing back a lot of what he wanted. But, you know, there's also a lot of invention. There's a lot of things that I felt like there are things in the book, like the Halliday journals, which, you know, you know, I said to Ernie straight up, I don't think we want to watch a character reading journals. And I have this idea that what if we put them in the Oasis and make them virtual so that you can walk through it like a museum. So, you know, there's a lot of ideas like that that came up early and I ran them by Ernie before I even wrote them. So, you know, the ones that he liked, he was very enthusiastic about and often offered me ideas. And the ones that he really didn't like, you know, he told me, he said, well, but won't that, you know, then you won't be able to do this, this, and this. So it, it was a pretty collaborative process to begin with. Yeah, one of the major differences, I guess, between the, the, the book and the movie are the challenges that uh, Parzival and, and the other players uh, participate in. Um, so I was wondering how you um, sort of arrived at the, um, at, at the versions that were in the movie. Well, first of all, and it's funny because, you know, Ernie has a very passionate fan base. So, and there's a very passionate fan base for the book, you know, it, it, so I often would, you know, I would meet people who are fans of the book who'd say, why did you change the challenges? And I always said, Ernie was the, Ernie changed them first. I mean, he, he knew that we had to turn them into something physical, you know, that was a little bit more kinetic for the screen. So there was already a mandate that of course we were going to change the challenges. Um, and like the race sequence was something that, you know, was an idea that he had already been kicking around. So that one, I just kind of embraced and went with, but in general, I felt like, you know, the challenges and the contests are great in the novel, but you just have to limit how much of that you can do in a movie. I mean, you cannot spend a movie with 25 minutes of sleuthing through trivia. It's just not, you know, it's just not going to work. And the other thing is that you have to make the challenges visually dynamic. I mean, once Steven Spielberg came on, that became even less of an issue because of course he was going to do that and do that well. But I just felt it was a narrative imperative that like one of the things that was hurting even the earlier adaptations was that it was trying too hard to tell the story in a linear way and you needed to kind of start with the contest already about to be broken open you know what I mean um, it's very easy in a novel to say five years later no one's done anything but you know in a movie a time jump like that has to be motivated you know it can't be motivated by trivia if you will so, you know, it's a two-pronged challenge. One was, what are the coolest possible sequences we can come up with because we're working in this incredible fantasy world where anything is possible. So, you know, let's, let's not just make it playing a game. You know, like even something like bringing Joust to life, which that was one we certainly considered, um, but still it, it involves a lot of playing. And I felt like if anything, we should save some of the actual old school gaming stuff for the very end because it would be intercut with a lot of other action. Um, whereas, you know, watching someone, uh, I mean, a race scene was a good idea, for example. That was a good way to show 
A, nobody had finished it, but B, here's an exciting sequence to watch, you know, while you're while you're hoping that the character can figure it out. So um, that was a very early discussion that, you know, um, you know, very quickly evolved into some of the, I, I always knew, for example, when I read the book, as much as I liked um, the idea of uh, movie Oki, right? The kind of, you go into a movie and you have to recite all the lines exactly. That is, not a good idea for the screen, in my opinion. It just would be dull for people who don't know every, you know what I mean? It just would be a strange thing. But on the other hand, I had written Last Action Hero, that was my first script, which is about a kid getting sucked into a movie, which Ernie knew, by the way, and you know, always told me inspired him. And I was like, well, we have to do, instead of movie Oki, it has to be that you go into the movie and can change, you know, you have to, go through the movie in your own way and you encounter the characters and there's jeopardy involved and it's just a fun sequence. And at one point it was even multiple movies that you were going through, but uh, originally that was going to be Blade Runner. I, I wrote many iterations of a Blade Runner challenge, but uh, it ended up being The Shining for a variety of reasons. So, but that's much later. That was after Steven came on, he, you know, we went through everything and revamped, you know, we kind of, fully, you know, did his full process of development where we went through every assumption and every choice and, you know, uh, got rid of the, changed the ones that didn't work and honed the ones that did and, you know, had a team of storyboard artists and great artists from ILM and all these other people giving input all, all in development. I mean, that's one of the best things about working with him is that we had a year where we were just working on the script and using the full, all the departments at his disposal to help make the script better so that by the time you finished, you don't have this document that none of these people over here actually can do. It might read well on the page, but it doesn't work. Uh, you know, that's what makes him such an, a, a great and efficient filmmaker is he has a totally different process, so. Yeah, and I think you also, um, well, you streamlined the the challenges in a way that in, in the book, there's always a couple of challenges sort of rolled up into one. You have to f f not only find yes. the dungeon, but you have to go through the dungeon and then you have to uh, play joust or um, at the end, you have to go through the Holy Grail, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but you would also have to play Tempest. Um, and there's, I think, a, a third challenge connected to the JK. I don't remember what it was now. Right, each of the challenges is three challenges. And I, you know, immediately said, well, you know, we have to streamline this too. Um, that, that was kind of a no brainer decision because that obviously in the book, he can get away with it. And you know, the movies, you just don't have, you don't have an unlimited time. You know, you can't, the reader can't meander through or the viewer can't meander through a movie. They've got to be pushed along. So you can't just do, three little challenges in a row, you know, it has to be, this is the one thing that needs to be done. Um, mostly you want to tell the story about the characters. So challenges and mysteries are interesting background things in a movie, but they can't be the focus. You know, they really have to be, they have to serve character purpose. And if they don't, you can only, you, you know, the audience often doesn't realize it, but if there's no real story going on, 
you can't put up with that many seconds of screen time without saying, wait, are we still on the same beat? You know, are we, you know, people don't really articulate it, but you can feel an audience get comfortable when they're like, enough, this is just more solving. There's no change in the character circumstances. It's just a longer sequence. And, uh, you know, that's true of chase scenes as well. And Spielberg is one of the best people, probably the best person to watch you know, to see how something is constructed cinematically, there's always, even within action sequences, there's always lots of twists and turns for, in terms of the characters, the jeopardy to the characters, and sometimes even story turns within the action sequences. One of Stephen's big mantras was take dialogue that's important and put it into the action sequence. Don't stop the action sequence to have dialogue, just you know, if they're going to have a shootout in uh, zero gravity, that's where he should start talking about his feelings for her, you know, like, and that was a, you know, great, you know, obviously it's not hard when Steven Spielberg tells you to do that, you're, you know, you would, even if I didn't agree with it, I would have done it. But obviously you're like, oh yeah, of course, that's why your movies are so great. So, um, yeah. So, so slimming the challenges down was, you know, that just had to be done. That was a non-controversial one as well, you know. Did you discuss how the different challenges um, would influence the character of Jim Halliday, um, how he came across? Um... Well, you know, I, this was my own reading of the book. Look, I, I feel strongly that, you know, you have to, it's, it's, I'm not the first to say it. It's a very old proposition and it's true but part of it is probably from working on a bunch of X-Men movies where I always approached every script I wrote as, okay, Magneto, he's not just the hero of his own story, but he's actually right. You know, most of the time his methods might be extreme, but he really is right about what's going to happen. And that's what makes the conflict between him and Xavier, who's got all the right intentions, but is often wrong about what to do. So, you know, writing from the types of stories where the villain's objectives are beyond reasonable, they, they even make a, a bit more sense than, than the hero's journey does. I felt like, you know, we had to look at the villains from two different perspectives. First of all, I felt strongly that somebody in this movie had to acknowledge the idea that this contest is not a good idea, right? I mean, it's, it goes without saying, when you read the book, and when you talk to fans, they all talk about like this contest is clearly being a good idea. But the Oasis is the engine for the economy of this future world. And the idea that you would have a contest based on trivia to pick the person who's now in charge of, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, and, you know, Exxon Mobil combined or whatever it would be, there is, there is a childishness and a ludicrousness to it. And something that I thought spoke to, you know, one of the themes in the book, which is, it's not a very healthy attitude to just be obsessed with trivia. So Sorrento, you know, that was one of the first things I attacked is, I, I was like, we have to make Sorrento someone whose point of view on this challenge is entirely reasonable to him, which is that, you know, which is different than it is in the book, obviously. And the other thing was Halliday. I mean, I felt like when I read Halliday's story, 
that particularly his attitude towards Kira and some of his attitudes towards things. And, and talking to Ernie, I think some of this is in the book and people don't necessarily realize it, but Halliday is a very ambiguous character. I mean, Morrow is heroic. Morrow's head is on, you know what I mean? He always, and particularly, you know, in the movie we accentuated that this is a guy who's trying to do things the right way, but Halliday, like many tech leaders, is not, you know, this, this kind of almost super heroic figure that people trust implicitly that they know what they're doing. And, uh, you know, it's funny because to me, that's what, I, when I see the final product, I feel like here's a cautionary tale about not trusting the vision of individual Silicon Valley, you know, tech billionaires and rather questioning whether they really, what they're doing is a good idea. So once I start to think about the challenge as this more ambiguous prospect that wasn't just clearly a good idea because it picked our hero, um, it also brought a lot of questions up about, you know, were, is Halliday as positive a figure as he's portrayed? even or as even as people treat him, you know, they treat him with a certain reverence, both, you know, the fans do, the book does, the movie does in its own way. But I also want to show you, this wasn't a very good way for him to live his life, you know, um, and that there had to be some cautionary aspect to the whole thing. You know, and that led to a lot of interesting discussions, believe me, because, you know, not everyone agreed with me on that. But I felt like that was essential that you need, you know, in terms of balance, you've got Morrow over here, who is clearly trying to do the right thing all the way through. And you have Sorrento over here, who is trying to, he thinks to do what he thinks is the right thing, but clearly in the wrong way. And, and maybe he's very wrong about what the right thing to do is. And Halliday is somewhere in the middle in an ambiguous place, you know, I mean, he's, I mean, certainly some of the things he does to Kira just felt to me like that's not, you know, that's not the behavior of somebody in love. That's, you know, that's negative behavior. So that's the way I read it. And I read the, the book and the movie as I know to some people it's, it's weird, but I see it as a cautionary tale about nostalgia and, uh, you know, a cautionary tale about, you know, looking into the mirror for our inspiration as opposed to looking forward. Um, and to me, Halliday represented somebody who could not really, you know, he, he couldn't get out of his own way. Um, you know, he wasn't this genius who'd been exploited and was a figure of pity. He was an incredibly wealthy guy who was wrapped up in his own mind and that's why, by the way, Mark Rylance's performance, what's crucial to it is he brings a tremendous amount of humility and likability to the role so that it's not just watching like a bratty jerk. But he also definitely plays a guy who doesn't care enough about other people's feelings, you know? Um, so, you know, there were structural reasons for that. I thought there were thematic reasons why that was important. Um, you know, it had to be about, it, it couldn't be about Wade learning to be like Halliday because Halliday left the world a mess, you know? I mean, he really did, right? And he kind of left the Oasis a mess too because there was no clear 
because Sorrento was coming, you know, IOI was coming pretty close to taking it over, which was not also not a good succession plan, you know, for the Oasis. So to a certain extent, it's about, it's gotta be about Wade learning from Halliday's mistakes and not wanting to be like him. And, and you know, and by the way, in all the years, Ernie and I laugh about it, I get so confused now between what was in the book, what was in the script, what Ernie and I came up with together, what Ernie came up with separately, what I came up with separately. But those crucial changes felt like from the beginning, I mean, that was part of my first pitch. Like we have to realign the moral center of this movie, you know, um, and make sure that Halliday plays as an ambiguous figure because it's also what adds to some of the tension of the challenges, which is it's not all fun and games. You know, and you don't know, I mean, the shining sequence, particularly, it's, it's kind of a dark and unpleasant, you know, parts of it are fun, but part of, you know, the whole structure of it is, and this is something that Ernie and I did really agree on by the time we got there, because we kind of came up with the sequence together, is that you're not supposed to feel that great about Halliday when you see what that challenge is all about, you know, it's, you know, chaining up Kira's likeness you know, inside a horror movie is not exactly, uh, you know, it's not something to be lauded. It's something to be conquered, you know? I mean, those were, there are certain things where it's just right off the bat, you know, the challenges, the holiday journals, how we would show flashbacks if we did do them, you know, uh, the roles of the villains and etc. I mean, all of that stuff uh, was right off the bat. Um, you know, question and, and I, you know, not a question, but something that I pitched my own take on. Uh, so, you know, and I felt like that's what the movie would need to work, so. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a good point about the Halliday character because in the book I always, I mean, it's it's fun to read, but I was thinking that, yeah, I don't know if being able to quote uh, the entirety of War Games would somehow I don't know it wouldn't be something that I could do even though I love war games and I've seen it uh, like dozens of times but also I don't think it would sort of uh, prove that I would be a good person to run the oasis just because I've memorized something um, whereas in the movie it's more about I think learning from somebody's mistakes I mean it's still a very self-centered contest in a way it's all about Halliday but that's the kind of person he is um but it's, it's right, a more but, personal thing, I think. It's just he's, he's trying to find somebody who is uh, clever enough to figure it out. He's, he doesn't have to be a very good gamer. He just needs to be somebody who understands the, the, the things that were driving him. Right. Well, one thing that Ernie got, I think, 100% right is there is a value, you know, and this is something that's in my Atari documentary. You know, people devalue fans over what they like. You know, if you walk into a room and say, you know, anywhere in the world and say, oh, I'm a fan of Shakespeare, you know, there's not a lot of people who are going to say, what a waste of time, you know? I mean, there probably are these days, um, somebody, some extreme theorist, but for the most part, everybody understands like that's accepted as a worthy use of your time. Uh, there's a lot of people that think reading comic books, you know, including when I was growing up, my parents thought this isn't serious. It's a waste of time. This is like, you know, they were thinking they were like cartoons or, or, you know, something I was reading in the Sunday paper. 
And no, they're, they're works of literature and art that have become more and more sophisticated and are worthy of study. And one of the points of the book certainly is that anything that inspires you, you know, in a deep way to both understand it better, to research it better, to communicate and be connected with other people is not a bad thing. I mean, unless it's, you know, there's some obviously ideologies that are bad and you should not, you should try to avoid. But in general, the scholarship, if you will, that Halliday required seemed to me the most reasonable part of it, which is knowing a lot about Halliday is like knowing a lot about Churchill. If you want to learn, you know, about uh, English, you know, governance or whatever. So I never saw there being a problem in Wade being an expert in the things Halliday loved and Halliday building a contest that's built around it because it still required effort and research and intelligence and um, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's still, that's, those are all positive notions. The negative side of it is obsession, right? Which is kind of what the shining sequence is about, you know, where if you're obsessive about the movie and insist that it be just like the original, this is an abomination, right? I mean, there's, it's actually a, a lot of meta things going on in that shining sequence. Maybe we'll come back to, but, but the idea that you, that this is Wade's advantage, that he truly loves this stuff and truly loves researching Halliday's life, and it's not a burden for him, it's an escape, gives him an advantage, that's fine. Um, you know, that's a totally, that's better than somebody who, you know, uh, purely memorizes it. So to me, it was more important that, you know, whatever of value could be gained from these various things, you know, Wade and his friends were pretty good at figuring it out, whereas someone who just studied it like the oologist right like you know um they changed a little bit it's the same idea a bunch of people paid in a room to study it rotely as their job are never going to really embrace the themes of it you know like someone who really loves it and if you just uh, you know if you pretend we're not talking about pop culture and instead we're talking about like military tactics that would be a totally reasonable plot for you know a movie, a war movie, where somebody understanding the battles before ends up helping them, you know, win one today. So, uh, yeah. So to me, you know, Ernie had this line that I put in Atari Game Over, which was, um, I love things and I love people who love things. And I think that's the crucial thing is that, and it's true of Ernie, it's not enough to just say, well, I love it. So it's valuable. Like I love erasers and I spent my life collecting erasers and studying them. I don't know if that's valuable or not, but if it brings you together with a group of eraser lovers and eraser fans, then good. And, and I think that's what's true of a lot of fan bases and a lot of pop culture stuff is it's not about, it, it gets way beyond the specifics of the piece of art and into what type of group of people grow connected over it? And how do they connect over it? And is it a negative or a positive connection? And most of the time it's a positive. You know, and most groups of people who love a piece of work do not sit around, you know, picking it apart and trying to destroy it. You know, they're not critics, they're fans, right? I mean, criticism absolutely has its place. And I'm a very critical person when I see, with any pop culture I watch, I'm very critical, but, 
that's an entirely different thing than being a fan of something and being brought together with other people over your, you know, being fans. And, and this is something that is not questioned in sports, which I happen to be, the, I was the only sports fan on this movie, but like, I, I'm also a big sports fan. Nobody questions why people are brought together by their love of a team, you know? You question the people who take it way too far and do crazy, crazy stuff. But you don't question that bond because it, you know, it just feels like it's natural. Well, that's true for all this stuff too. Yeah, a friend of mine once said that uh, when you, uh, like, when you know the the results of a sports game from 1974, uh, people would assume, yeah, okay, he's a baseball fan or a football fan or something. When you know the director of a certain movie and the cinematographer, and you know who edited it, then people look at you like you're kind of crazy. <laughs> um, right. It's true, and I can tell you as someone who knows both, like I can quote you baseball statistics that are so arcane, I can't believe I know them. I just learned them as a kid, so I can't forget them. But I also am a bit, I'm no, you know, I met my match in Ernie, um, you know, I thought I, you know, was pretty good at trivia, but once you meet Ernie, forget it. Whatever, if you think you're good, you're not. Because um, he knows like, who shot the behind the scenes documentary and who the DP on that was. He knows, you know what I mean? He knows crazy <laughs> stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's all about wh what effect it has on you as a person and does it isolate you or bring you together with people in a positive way? So that's, that's the crucial part of it. That's something that's very much in the book that's crucial is that it is about five friends who joined together because of a similar love and that they're not just doing it for the result they're doing it because they love it and that's you know crucial to the movie i think i mean to the to the story of both books and i think it's one of the, the the most charming aspects of it that it's such a positive uh depiction of fandom um that it's truly people who love something um because i mean if you look at especially if you look at the internet and in recent years um, we've seen such a different side of fandom and I'm sure it's just, you know, just a small fraction of people, but they're very vocal and they're very toxic in how they attack everybody who is sort of connected with things that they get upset about. I mean, I don't know, you've, I guess that you've had your share of experiences working on so many comic book and superhero movies um, to, to get that kind of reaction. Yeah, I mean, I've had a pretty good view of all this because I started, you know, the first adaptation I did was a draft of the first Hulk movie when I was in my 20s in the 90s when, you know, I was on the internet because my, you know, my right, my previous writing partner and I used to send scripts over the internet to each other to rewrite at times. But, you know, there was no real internet culture. Um, and I have, you know, as I started working on more and more Marvel movies, the internet was booming. And so I saw the change from uh, where there was no access for fans at first, right? So where it was just like it was all, always was to there was some access for fans to the people behind the scenes and to the creators, more you know, limited to more specific sites and professional boards and things like that. Um, to it exploding, you know? And one of the things that happened when it exploded is suddenly 
first of all, it's absolutely true. And I've been saying this to people since like 2003 from or five or whatever, from my earliest experiences with fan message boards was you are going, the, the people who hate it the most are going to drown out a lot of people and it's going to seem like everybody hates it. I mean, I actually, there's a guy who, I don't even know, I don't know who it was, but uh, there's someone who would post negative stuff about me on every message board in the early 2000s. And this is back when nobody told you, oh, don't go look at comments. And there's somebody on a message board. Uh, it felt to me like all these people were very critical of my work. And I realized it was the same person just going from site to site under different names saying the same thing. And I realized this is really counterproductive. 99% of these people are totally reasonable fans who, whose criticisms, some half the time I agree with them because I, as a writer, you don't have total control. But it's crazy to read that stuff because it gives you this impression that there's all these people who hate you out there. Now I think we've moved to a point where there are a lot of people, there's still a very small minority, but it's still a lot of people who are very vocal. And it's also empowered people. Um, I think it's fine that fans, you know, agitate for what they want up front. But there are people who obviously, I mean, the thought of saying this isn't exactly like the comic book and therefore it is bad is so inherently ludicrous. You know, that I, I used to joke with when I, because Ready Player One inspires a lot of people fans of the book, there are a lot of people who for, for their own reasons are really obsessed with all of the trivia too. And so the thought that we didn't include any of it is very hard for them to take, which is obviously insane because things that we legally can't get are not gonna be in the movie. Uh, we can't put 10,000 references in the movie. You know, we can't do, we just can't, but also we don't want to. Like it's, it's a different medium. It's not, and I, I used to say like, what these fans want is for us to film the pages of the book being slowly turned so that they can, because that's the only true experience, right? I mean, this even be more true with a comic book. It's like, well, it sounds like what you want is an animated version of X-Men that is exactly like the comic book. And that's reasonable, but we're not doing that. You know, and we're not, nor are we obviously destroying, we're not tearing up the comic books. I have them all, you know, I have collections of them. So, so uh, that becomes a tricky, it's become a trickier thing to navigate. Although, you know, I at least got the early lesson of don't bother to read the comments and you can't, you, you know, sometimes fans have great ideas, by the way. Sometimes fans are like, they'll propose something, you're like, that is a great way to do this character on screen. But for the most part, yeah, it's just a lot of hating, a lot of trolling. And it's also just a misunderstanding about how inherently different a book is from a movie or, you know, comic books are often closer. Like you can do, I mean, actually one, one example that I would use because it's funny how it's evolved. Um, I really loved uh, Zack Snyder's director's cut of Watchmen. And if anything, you know, you know, I thought, well, here's a movie that fans of the book are going to love. But people, I, I was so shocked at how many people criticized it for being too close to the book. It's like, you know, people said, like, there's a lot of people whose criticism was, it's like he took every page and translated onto the screen. It's like, okay, all right. Okay, now that's, and that's the thing. There's no, there's no answer. There's no successful answer to pleasing 
everybody who's a fan. You have to just forget it. It's just not possible. So, you know, you just have to focus on making the best piece of art that you can be that's still based on the source material and that you're not callously changing things. You know, that you're not for no reason changing the name of a character when it's perfectly fine the way it was. But that's, by the way, it's not always true. Like Marvel is a good example where there's some character names that are were silly and amusing when Stanley came up with them. And I've talked, I have talked in the past, you know, uh, to, uh, you know, rest in peace to Stanley. And, you know, it was a name they came up with quickly that just sounded, they like alliterative names like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. But after a while, some of the names get silly when they're set on screen. And so you have to kind of make choices about, you know, what you're going to do. But yeah, anyway, I, I, look, Atari Game Over is very much about the how the rise of the internet kind of created a fandom that recreated the history of things for themselves, you know, and that creeps out now the public history is E.T. destroyed the movie industry. That was never said until the internet came around. So, um, but yeah, there's a lot. There's also a lot of people out there who are, I mean, look, who are very impassioned about some of the issues that Ready Player One does not deal with. And at least that has some social component to it that they're trying, you know, that it's one thing to express, well, I didn't like that the Iron Giant's leg was, you know, six inches bigger than he was in the original movie. It's another to say, well, you know, it feels like, you know, the female character is just a goal and not someone who has an active role in the movie. I mean, that's a more legitimate criticism. Some of it, you know, I agreed with and tried to address. But sometimes it's like, okay, well, that's reasonable, but it is true that for everything you do, there's someone who's going to loathe it. So you just have to kind of tune it out. Um, and it is an anti, I, I think it's both a criticism of the gatekeeping aspect of fandom, if you would, Ready Player One. It's a criticism of that, in my opinion, certainly the movie, but it's even more a criticism of the haters, you know, of people who just want to hate things because that is who Sorrento is to a certain extent. He doesn't understand it, so he hates it. But yeah, so it's very much the last couple of movies I've made are, you know, actually, I guess, particularly Atari Game Over and Ready Player One, but even to a certain extent, Incident at Loch Ness, this other movie I made uh, with Werner Herzog, are kind of about this phenomenon. Yeah, maybe we'll get to Incident at Loch Ness. Um... You were talking about the references in, in uh, both the book and the movie, and there are obviously uh, a lot of different references for some reason or other. You mentioned that a, a, a couple of things that you didn't get the rights to. My question would be, why, why do you think there is such a fascination with the iconography um, of the 80s in, in um, pop culture, especially these days? Well, I think there's a number of good reasons. First of all, it was an era in which a number of these art forms, such as, you know, uh, comic books, video games, obviously, uh, and even popular, big, giant, popular movies, it, you know, it started in the 70s, but by the 80s, it was exploding in popularity. So, you know, and even in terms of the music fandom, you know, like a lot of things, that was the heyday of it. I, I actually think it'll be interesting to see if 20 years from now, there'll be an explosion in 
you know, nostalgia for TV of the last 10 years, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, content for streamers and content for, you know, that's shown on a television just because that, or, or even YouTube content, because that's what kids grew up with, right? But when you talk about, I do think there's natural cycles. In the 70s, people were nostalgic for the 50s, you know, it makes sense that like at a certain point, the 80s turn would come around. Um, and I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is that it's natural that when the people of that generation come of age, those are the touch points for them that they're gonna come back to. So when people my age, I mean, I, when I first got to Hollywood in 1990, the first thing I wanted to do was go pitch a take on Iron Man. You know, it's something I'd been thinking about like with CG, I was a big Cameron fan. I thought this is something that could be made. And, you know, there were no takers and Marvel was in bankruptcy and it seemed like a ridiculous idea. Um, and then I wanted to work on X-Men and that was going nowhere and the Hulk, the same thing. But, um, you know, a lot of times when I would talk to executives at the time when I was very young, when I was in my twenties, I couldn't explain to them like, no, these aren't, I know it seems to you like a cartoon, but it's not. There are really good stories here and they're meaningful. And as my generation, you know, grew up in Hollywood, you know, or, or you know, ex whatever, ascended in Hollywood, those things that we loved, one of them being comic books, which got significantly better, I would argue, in the 70s, like took the, you know, I mean, certainly a quantum leap in the 60s, but I think even more of one in the late 70s, uh, you suddenly have all these people who are big fans of this stuff. And so it slowly goes from people treating comic books like a bastard stepchild to, uh, you know, like something that's worthy of adaptation. And with video games, that's unquestionably the case because video games weren't even created until the, you know, mass market video games. Well, you can go watch Atari Game Over if you want the history of video games, but obviously that's going to lead you back to the 80s because that's really when that industry exploded. Um, so I think it's not so surprising that, you know, there's so many content creators who are of a certain age, Gen X, if you will. And so the things that they really loved have overtaken what used to be 50s or 60s nostalgia or, you know, um, even 70s nostalgia. Um, and the 80s nostalgia, I think, is passing, honestly. I think it'll, I think it'll, we'll move past it pretty soon. And I actually, I felt in the movie, we shouldn't, you know, Halliday, everything Halliday does, I felt should obviously like the book be 80 centric because that's who he is, but that the whole Oasis shouldn't be that way. You know, the whole Oasis has to have people who are fans of other stuff in it. So the architecture of the Oasis might be 80s influenced, but there had to be stuff from Game of Thrones and the Matrix and Lord of the Rings and all sorts of other stuff because you know, not everyone would be obsessed with it. But I, I do think there is a certain inevitable cycle. I think the internet has had a lot to do with the people who came of age in that time also were the first people to really in mass use the internet, you know, um, not to the extent that our own children did, but like, so I think a lot, there's a lot of good explanations for why American 80s pop culture in particular MTV, I think it was a big, you know, influence on that generation. So uh, it doesn't surprise me that that happened. It really doesn't. Like I, I was waiting, I was kind of waiting for it to happen. I kind of feel though that it's a, a fairly new phenomenon that um, 
the nostalgia um, is combined with um, so many quotes, direct quotes and references to something. Like if you look at the movies of the 70s or 80s, yes, there is a certain nostalgia for um, earlier times, American Graffiti plays in the 50s and Peggy Sue Gets Married plays in the 50s, movies like that, but they don't reference um, exact characters and like I said, the iconography and the the music is is just sort of, that, that's because it's a period piece in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas these days, um, you, you even have a lot of stuff that is made to look as if it was made during the 80s. Like there are video games, uh, retro games that um, you know use that 8-bit pixel look and you have music that sounds as if it was uh, you know produced straight out of 1985. And that I, I, I couldn't see that in, in like 1973, you wouldn't have a recording that would sound like it came from 1943. Yeah, although interestingly, I mean, what about take Led Zeppelin, for example, right? I mean, I don't, you know, Led Zeppelin, it's all based on very well-known blues from decades before, you know, and they just kind of they really just took a whole bunch of blues songs and updated. I mean, by the way, I love their music for different reasons, but that's what it is. But I would say that, of course, that's true. And a lot of that has to do with how culture gets, you know, spread so much wider. So that's one thing. But certainly, um, you know, there's a whole part in in um, Atari Game Over about lists, about how when the internet first started, one of the biggest things was making lists, top 10 lists, top 10 worst, you know, top 100 lists. I mean, there was an explosion in lists. And when I was a kid, there was a book called The Book of Lists that was really popular. And it was just one book that had a ton of lists in it, but the internet just became lists and lists and lists. So I think because of the orientation, like the early internet was just really focused on lists of stuff that happened to focus on the eighties. But, um, you know, I think, I think you'll see, I've already seen a bunch of nineties stuff coming out, like creeping in where people are doing stuff that looks very nineties, if you will. Um, so, which is a distinctive look. It's like a worse in some way, it's like a worse video quality look weirdly, because it's not even retro enough. Um, but, you know, it's also, there was a very extraordinarily productive period. You know, there are, there are good periods where a lot of interesting stuff comes out that stays iconic, you know? I mean, if stuff comes out, you know, if, if Prince's work stays popular for four decades, that probably says something about Prince's work, you know, not as much about, oh, it's from the 80s, so we love it. And I think there were a lot of people working at the height of their, you know, talent in that decade. But, um, but yeah, I, you know, who can say? I mean, uh, who knows exactly why? I mean, I know that my generation grew up quoting stuff to the point that it annoys younger generations. Like if you quote Caddyshack, when I was in college, quoting Caddyshack was a totally funny, real, you know, like everyone knew what you were talking about. Now it's like, shut up with the Caddyshack shit, you know, quotes, like I've heard them, you know, um, or any number of things, you know, it's, it's just people naturally grow tired of them. But, uh, but I do think it's also that people obsessively watch. I mean, my kids have, by the way, you were talking earlier about memorizing movies. I mean, you know, I've seen some movie. I've seen Monty Python, the Holy Grail. I couldn't tell you how many times, I mean, 
I do not have the movie memorized. I don't have any movie that I've written memorized. You know, I, like that's crazy to me. I, I mean, I couldn't, I could reproduce half of it maybe for you and certainly not all the dialogue. So uh, that's just another level of obsession. And I think part of it is that, you know, back in my day, you had to have a VCR and pause and rewind. You know, if you really wanted to catch every line, it wasn't easy. Now you just go up on the internet and look up a transcript of what everyone's saying. So leads to more quotes. Yeah, my sister used to uh, put the tape recorder next to the TV so that she could tape the movies. Um, that was before VCRs were in uh, common um, so that she could listen to the movies um, over and over again. Oh, just listen to them. Oh, that I didn't do, but I did. I used to record songs from the radio that way. Mm -hmm. Me too. <laughs> I'd hear something and I'd click record on a separate recorder and I'd get, you know, I'd make tapes for people and they had ridiculous, like the end of a commercial in the, you know, just because I didn't do it in time. But um, yeah, it was a different era. Yeah, one of the interesting thing about, things about uh, Ready Player One is uh, with Steven Spielberg as a director, um, you have a guy who is sort of responsible for a lot of the pop culture um, that is quoted in this world. Um, I was wondering, was there some, some kind of discussion while you were going through all of the references and all of the worlds that you were creating um, about that, you know, that it's sometimes that he was involved in doing that? Oh, I mean, were there some discussions? It was incessant. First of all, we had to strip all the Spielberg references out, which, you know, I mean, we, Ernie and I joked with him. I mean, I specifically said to him, it's really annoying how many great movies you made or produced <laughs> making my job. I used to give him a heart. I was like, you're making my job so much harder. Like I totally forgot you produced blank or whatever, or we can't even make an ER reference. You produced that too. Not that we were going to. Um, so yeah, it came up all the time. The other thing is that every time you start talking about a movie, I mean, one of the greatest moments of my life was one of the first meetings I had with Steven, there was a Blade Runner sequence in the movie and originally and I went into his theater with him and we watched the sequence in question and you know Stephen and Ridley Scott obviously go way back I think Stephen was on the set at some points of Blade Runner because he's about to make Indiana you know I forget maybe he was making um the second Raiders movie at that point but whatever everything we're talking about he had a hand in you know there's a day on set that we were talking about Scarface we were actually talking about weapons that they might use. We were talking about Scarface and Stephen said, we started talking about the scene, the say hello to my little friend scene. And Stephen was like, yeah, no, I shot some of that. And we were like, what? And it was me and some of the actors like, what do you mean you shot some of Scarface? It's Brian. Like, Brian called me. He needed someone to shoot the reverse angles of Al Pacino. And it came out in a documentary. Like uh, he said, I can tell you this because he had never told anyone because he didn't want to like, say he shot stuff, but Brian De Palma, a documentary came out about him right while we were making the movie where he told the story. So he told us, and we're just like, what you, what weren't you there for? You know, so, so, um, which is awesome. You know, like we were, it was thrilling, you know, to be able to talk to him about this stuff. Uh, but it did make things harder because he has a hand in so much pop culture. I mean, I had such a good joke about how hard it was to park the mothership from Close Encounters. That was like a runner that I had in my first script. 
I mean, I let, it made me laugh all the time because if you know the mothership, like where could you park that thing? Um, and you know, out of the script, can't do that. Can't do a Close Encounters joke. So, um, you know, Back to the Future is the one allowance that he made because he felt like it was too, you know, intrinsic to the storytelling um, that he left it in there. But it was, it was a big pain in the ass. On the other hand, you know, Steven's ability to get people to license, to let him use their material is insane. I mean, the stuff that's in this movie, nobody else could have gotten people, you know, nobody else could have gotten the things that we got. Uh, it's just, you know, Steven knows, I mean, whatever, he's, he's the greatest filmmaker we've ever had. You know, he's, uh, you know, he's a force unto himself. And so, you know, once you have him, the sky's the limit. I mean, the fact that we got The Shining, you know, Ernie was like, if I thought even for a second we would get The Shining, like a Stanley Kubrick movie, I would have definitely done something with it. And when he was like, yeah, let's do The Shining, we were just, you know, we were like giggling, like how did, right, he was best friends with Stanley Kubrick, of course. Um, but it was a lot of work, honestly. It was a lot of work staying away from Spielberg stuff, you, it, it's pretty funny how often something would come up and then we'd be like, we can't do it, you know? Um, and they dropped some Easter eggs in there, the ILM guys and Ernie, they did one or two for me. There's like a last action hero Easter egg I didn't know was coming, but there's a bunch for Steven uh, that, you know, they didn't point out to him until after the movie was done, but you know, that's about all we could do, but yeah. That's that's the one downside of working with Steven is he's made too many good movies. So. <laughs> yeah, you have the, the there's this Jack Slater uh, marquee on on uh, during the race sequence, right? Yeah, yeah. I I know it. By the way, I had watched that race sequence because I was in all the pre and post production meetings about it. Like Steven was so incredibly generous and had me come to any meeting I wanted to go to. So I went to all. You know, he wanted me to work with all the board artists, but then even in his effects reviews, I mean, if you can imagine sitting and watch Steven Spielberg do an effects review and, and critique material for its cinematic quality, it's, it's pretty insane. I mean, it's, it's an insane experience. It's, you know, you want to be just taking notes and recording it, which you're not supposed to do, so you don't. But, uh, but it was insane to do that. And I never saw the last action hero frames until it was too late. So, I mean, they were clever about it. They made sure to keep that shot. That marquee was probably blank, you know, up until the last time I saw it and then they dropped that in. So, but uh, yeah, that was, it was fun actually seeing some of the stuff. I mean, I, I don't think there's ever been a movie quite like it or I don't know if there ever will be, but you know, where it is just so jam packed you know, I don't even think it's appropriate to call them Easter eggs because it's just the fabric of the movie, you know, is all of these pop culture references. That's the part of the point, you know? Yeah, in a, in a way, I think Steven Spielberg is almost a kind of holiday figure um, in, in that sense. I certainly had the feeling while watching the movie that he was connecting very much with that person who is so immersed in, in pop culture. You know, what's funny is that I agree I think you're right. And I think that Steven and Mark Rylance have a great connection and are very fond of each other, you know. But the truth is, Steven is Morrow. 
I mean, Steven certainly has Halliday's talent, but he, he is not, if you think about it, there's a lot of other people, I won't name names, who are a lot like Halliday, many of whom don't even realize how much like Halliday they are. But Steven is, you know, such, he's a humanist, he's so much warmer, he's, you know, you know what I mean? There's not this, uh, he's made movies in so many different genres, he has so many different interests, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like this is where, I mean, this is a guy who has tremendous interest in history and all sorts of other things and certainly cinema, but it's weird sometimes. I would have to remind Stephen because I could tell there's times where I was pitching something about Halliday and it bothered Stephen because he felt like you could almost see like, it was partly like Mark was playing it in such a sympathetic way that he didn't want to think badly of him. But I also think that he probably, of course, he associates with Halliday. You know, it's, and I, it's funny, people say it's lonely at the top. I mean, Stephen has an enormous family and they're always around and, and all his friends with a million people. So it's not like, you know, he's ever truly alone, but it is lonely when I, I do see it, having, getting to sit next to him for a year or two, watching every single person that comes up to him is emotionally charged, wants to talk about him, it's very hard for them to have a normal conversation with him. And Steven's still a person, a regular guy. And he's not like, you know, a professional athlete who travels every day of the year and lives in his own bubble. He's, he's a person who like, you know, kind of has a regular life and does stuff. And so I see it's just, it's hard when your work means so much to people that like they act differently around you. Um, and I am sure he could associate with some of those qualities that Halliday had. I'm sure there's some sense of like, I wish I could just retreat into my childhood home or I could do this, that, or the other. But, but it is funny because I don't think Steven's anything like Halliday. Um, I think he might think he is, but he's wrong. I mean, he is, he, he's far more Morrow, but you know, that's not even fair. He's just, he would never leave the leadership of his company to somebody who passed a test of trivia of things he liked, you know, like that's not what he would do. So, uh, but it is an interesting thing about the movie. And, and I do think like one, one sequence, there's only one or two critics who I think really under, who really nailed what we were going for in the shining sequence, which was both the hardest sequence to write. I mean, it, we wrote a million versions of it because this was one thing Ernie and I really worked together on, you know, both on set and off. But one of the things about the shining sequence that I think is incredibly subversive, it's Steven Spielberg going back and redirecting a movie made by the most obsessive and perfectionist director who even, you know, Steven sees as an icon whose material is not to be touched, you know, like he would not re-edit the actual Shining. But part of the point of the sequence is this is sacred, right? Like even to Steven, you know, the Shining, it's canon, it's sacred. You can't mess with it. And what happens? There's sight gags, there's zombies, there's things that are definitely not in the Shining in any version of it. There's some things that are from the book, some things that are from the movie. There's like silly, lots of silliness that's totally inappropriate to the movie. I mean, it's a, it's a deconstruction somewhat. I don't know if it's a deconstruction, but it's, it's basically taking the things that you love about The Shining and very intentionally screwing around with them 
And that is what the scene is about, right? In the movie, the characters remark, we're not supposed to be slavishly loyal to The Shining. That's clear. Look at what's happened so far. I mean, Wade says there's the, the gatekeeping fandom is summed up in one sentence where Wade's like, that's not what happens in The Shining. And Artemis says, maybe that's the point, you know? And, and that's kind of what we got at. And the funny thing is Stephen just kind of did it that way. That's what felt right to him was to, to take The Shining and, and, you know, at one point we even incorporated elements from 2001 and other Kubrick movies. There's an incredible chase where, you know, the bathroom in The Shining turned into the wheel from 2001. It never actually got made that way. But I think what's so subversive about the sequence is here's Steven Spielberg, the, you know, the supposedly most nostalgic director. And, and he is going back and saying, this stuff is not sacred. Nothing is above, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful, but it doesn't mean we can't do something different with it. It doesn't mean that it, we have to bow our heads and only speak about it in certain phrases. And I think it's, a very interesting sequence. Some, I think people will be writing essays about it in the years ahead about what the intention behind that sequence is because it's complicated, you know? I mean, Kubrick is a, is more of a, is a bit of a Halliday type figure, right? I mean, he's got a lot of Halliday type qualities. So I think that's something that a lot of people get overwhelmed by all the references and don't realize what the movie is actually trying to say at times, which is great. By the way, I think it's totally fine. It's kind of good when you don't figure out until later. And there's plenty of people who watch Fight Club who totally missed the point, you know, the first 10 times they saw it. So that's one of the things I like about the movie and I, particularly about that sequence is it is Steven doing something seems oh, so unlike him. You know, if you'd said, oh, you got to see this movie, Stephen eviscerates a Stanley Kubrick sequence and kind of makes fun of him in it. If you know Stephen, you'd be like, there's no, what? He would never do that. You know, he loved Stanley, but he understands. And Stanley would have, I, I guarantee you, he would tell you, Stanley would have been completely amused by the whole thing. I mean, I, don't, I can't speak enough to his personal thoughts about this, but I, I feel like there's elements of that in the movie that only Steven Spielberg could do because it's only relevant, you know, in the same way when you watch Unforgiven without Clint Eastwood's body of work, that movie does not work the same way. I mean, it is playing off his body of work. This movie, the fact that Steven Spielberg made it provides a tremendous amount of the meaning that you can pull from it. You know, it's, it's not, those two cannot be separated in my opinion. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially since the Kubrick connection is, is uh, also relevant to his, when he made AI, for example. Um, well, and also so, personal. I mean, it was very, they were very, very good friends for many years. So. And I always loved the sequence because of the interactivity that's kind of, um, I found that more interesting than, you know, being part of a movie and then having to quote all of the dialogue. I mean, I'm sure that's fun, um, but sort of stepping into a movie and being allowed to explore that world of the movie on your own, um, that was, that is a, like an amazing thought. And I was going to say, you're talking to someone who the first big idea I had for a movie before I even came to Hollywood was Last Action Hero. I mean, it was a kid who is based on kind of me growing up in New York City, getting to go into a movie, like a dumb action movie that he loved. I mean, you know, so 
to me, I actually really felt like working on Ready Player One and watching the final product was like seeing, and particularly the shining sequence, I was like, that's what I want. I've always wanted to see since I, you know, was 22. I really wanted to see someone do this. So it was very exciting to me personally. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention last uh, action hero, but and I think that's also where incident at Loch Ness um, comes into play. That sort of deconstruction, sort of taking apart and then putting something together, um, playing with the form um, and 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 that that meta level um, movies about movies. Yep, yep. I mean, incident at Loch Ness. I mean, it's still. I, I think it's the best thing I've ever done, you know. Um, I, you know, I don't know, all the way, I, it's hard for me to judge, obviously, but it's the thing that I'm proud of. And it, it's similar in that, you know, I was also as a kid, you know, my parents took me to a ton of foreign films. I wasn't just like a comic book geek. And, you know, Werner Herzog, I became a huge fan of his work in college, particularly. But when I got the chance to work with him, you know, I, I, it was another thing where I said, absolutely, yes. Werner Herzog, I'm there, whatever, you know, I helped him work on the script. Um, but that movie is about Werner Herzog in the same way, in a lot of the same ways that Ready Player One is about Steven, Steven Spielberg. Now, Incident Loch Ness is much more overtly about Werner Herzog. It's literally about him, but it's not, you know, that's still not Werner. He's still acting. You know, he's still playing the part of Werner Herzog in the movie. And I'm playing the part of a horrible version of myself. Um, but yes, it is also, it's almost like, what if you could walk into a documentary about yourself, you know, which is kind of what's happening to Werner. Um, and we kind of treated him that way. We didn't tell him a lot of the stuff that was going to happen. We purposely like sp sprung it on him, like, you know, the, the bikini model, he knew something was coming, but he didn't know exactly what it was going to be. And my friend, Michael Carnow, who's in it, you know, the cryptozoologist was a, a lot of the stuff he said to Werner. I mean, Michael improvised something. This is getting very deep. You, you have to really watch the movie. But if you notice, he offers to give Werner his autograph rather than here he comes up and says, I can sign this for you, which Werner you know, had no idea was coming and he laughs very genuinely. But um, yeah, I mean, look, I always have been fascinated by how, you know, how story is created, how the form dictates story. Um, you know, the idea that like, uh, there are multiple layers of truth to what you're making and that you can read something on multiple levels and it can still be interesting and exciting and funny. It doesn't have to be dry in order to be working on multiple, well, dry is good, but it doesn't have to be boring to work on multiple levels. But um, I think I've always, since I was a kid, like even the plays I wrote were absurdist. Um, I've always, at the same time that I love the stuff I work on, I'm also have an eye on you know, the parody of it or the satire of it, you know, and maybe that's because I grew up watching Airplane and movies like that, or Monty Python, for that matter. But like, you know, I'm always looking for a way to weave that in. Um, yeah, so I mean, and Incident Loch Ness is one of the only times I've ever, I had no idea why I was doing it. I, I mean, the idea came to me one day while I was hanging out with Werner, the next day I, I said, what if we went and did this? And he said, sure. And 
three or four months later, we were off doing it. And I really didn't know what people would say, what is it? Is it a horror movie? I was like, I don't even know. We'll see what it is when I finish. So, you know, that's one of those moments where it's like, you can't really, whatever it came out as, I mean, it's clearly the whole thing is obviously a metaphor for my experiences in Hollywood. I mean, I'm playing the producer who said to me, hey, let's take the plot from your other movie and put it in this movie. And I was like, the plot? I mean, that's kind of, that is what my script, you know, like that's the whole movie. Um, so yeah, um, that was coming from a slightly darker place. Although my affection for Werner is obviously very positive, but it's also, by the way, the same thing about like people holding Werner up as this, they do believe he's a mythical figure. I mean, I mean, he is a mythical figure, but I also think people think he's literally bulletproof or something. You know, I mean, he's been shot a lot of times, so, but he's still a person, you know, and there's still, he lives in a house and he goes and buys razor blades and he does the things that we all do. And, you know, that's kind of what the movies, that's one of the obvious plots of it or points of it. Yeah, um, the incident at Loch Ness was kind of um, responsible for the fact that when I saw your Atari documentary, I was first being skeptical if that was the real thing. Um, because, you know, I, I knew, okay, incident at Loch Ness is fake. And then you did um, The Grand, which took the documentary form for a fictitious story. Um, yeah. And so when the Atari thing started, I was like, yeah, well, maybe there's a twist at the end that was going to tell me that it's all a, a sham, but it's a real documentary, right? Yeah. Well, by the way, I love that I, I really, I didn't think enough people had seen Incident at Loch Ness, although I was hired because they had seen Incident at Loch Ness and they were worried we weren't going to find anything. So they wanted someone. I had a pretty good comedy laid out about me completely failing to make a good documentary, you know, where we find nothing is going to be like Al Capone's vault, the famous, you know, they there's nothing in there when they opened it. Um, but actually what happened was the first day of filming, uh, Howard Warshaw was like, oh, wait, there's a story here to be told no matter what. So I'm going to tell it. But I definitely played with that a lot. And I, I, I to me, it was very amusing. There was other people, other people didn't like it as much, but I felt it played well for people who saw it. The whole idea that I keep talking about, there's going to be amazing graphics on here. And let me show some graphics that are very silly. And that I'm constantly asking dumb questions. You know, I, I'm doing like my own little Louis Theroux uh, impersonation, if you know his work. But, um, but yeah, I definitely wanted there to be because it is a hoax. In the end, there aren't a million ET cartridges buried. It didn't destroy the film industry. You know, I don't, if you've seen it, you know, like it is a hoax built by the internet that points to a truth that has some validity that we dug up literally, you know? And so, and weirdly is, you know, was I was using all these Spielberg references you know, not thinking I would soon be meeting with Steven Spielberg, you know, that wasn't coming to mind, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's very much, that's something I really liked with Incident Loch Ness. I, you know, the first crowds that saw it in the Q and A afterwards, there's a lot of people who were very angry at me and it took a while for somebody to point out, but it says you directed this movie. I mean, this didn't actually happen. And I was like, Maybe it did, or maybe this is my counter propaganda. You know, I just like messing with people and so did Werner. But um, yeah, Atari, it easily could have ended up that way. It's just, if you stumble on a good story, you don't, you tell it first. I mean, that's, I'm, 
you know, I'm, I would never take undo a good story that I found in front of me. Cause what's the point? It's hard to come by a good story, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, um, it's something that I, I kind of hoped like one of the things that we did in Instant Hell Lock Ness that amused me and my friend, you know, Michael Carnow, who I created alphas with, you know, we always like the idea of, you know, confusing a hoax with totally pointless lies that like, so in Incident Loch Ness, all the people are who they say they are. Those are all real people. I mean, we did cast a lot of them, but that's who they are in real life. You know, we cast Gabby Beristain as the DP, whatever. But it's also filled with misinformation and filled with like the house where Werner's house, he lived two miles from me, but we shot his house as my house and then shot you know, whatever. We did all these different things. And we also did press releases that made no sense. We started a rumor that uh, Werner had flown a humpback whale into uh, Loch Ness. And that's why, that's how he did the effects. And that started, and and Werner denied it, which ironically made people think it was true. So, you know, I'm always fascinated by stuff like that about how, uh, I mean, I do think it's a bit ahead of its time because it was very much about look how easy it is to get people to believe something if it's printed someplace online. You know, we announced that Werner Herzog's making a documentary the next day, the BBC called me and asked if they could make a documentary about this Herzog documentary I was producing. And I was so tempted to say yes. I was so tempted to let them come, but I just felt like we would never get our movie made, but it would have been brilliant if they had, so. Um, and yeah. so it's interesting how you can create that sort of reality um, for, with a movie that sort of fake reality and, and uh, sort of people just come to it with their own assumptions and say, well, yeah, this is the real thing. Right. And, and it's, it's gotten scary. Like when I made it, I just thought this is something that amuses me is the way that the, that the modern era of technology has created these fake realities that people believe in, right? And that, and I tried to do something benign, like who cares that he, if we saw an essay or didn't, you know, I mean, Werner announced that he was gonna catch it. He was gonna catch it and kill it as a, and you know, people took him seriously, which is hilarious to think that he's gonna catch and kill something that doesn't exist. But, um, but it was fairly benign at that time. But I think you've also seen in the past 10 years, how ugly it can get where when, when, you know, you put out false propaganda or when you put out, when you simply just dispute facts over anything, even small things, just to confuse people, it's not a joke anymore, you know, like, um, but I do think some of what I was getting at in Incident at Loch Ness and even in the Atari documentary, it was what I was seeing that was kind of weird to me where people were living in this reality where this is what they knew to be true about this movie or about, you know, this piece of content. And now it's just, nobody knows what the hell is going on. You know, I mean, nobody even knows. I mean, I actually very recently toyed with doing, actually even a couple of years ago, doing a documentary about a fake, you know, and, and Peter Jackson did something like this, but this would have been about a fake television show, like that was enormously popular, but I would make it seem so real that, I, you know, I wanted people to think that like this, this show had been made and how did they miss it, you know? And then I just didn't because other things came up. But, mm -hmm. um, 
but I am fascinated over and over with that that feeling of like trying to get to the bottom of the movie itself, not just the story, you know, but what's behind it. Just one thing, um, I mean, we touched upon this with the Atari documentary is that it seems so much like a precursor to what you were doing with Ready Player One, um, with Ernie Klein, with Steven Spielberg, but also there's the the story of adventure in it with the, the Easter egg that um, it's mentioned in, in uh, Ernie's book, but just briefly, but it plays such a huge part in, in Ready Player One. Um, and and I, I think even the, the um, Howard Howard Warshaw, I think even his character sort of connects to the, the kind of Jim Halliday uh, figure. So uh, how much of an influence was that uh, working on the film? Um, it was a tremendous influence. You can't see it right here, but that adventure, the first ET cartridge and the first adventure cartridge were right over there on my wall, hung up. Um, <clears throat> you know, adventure, Ernie and I talked about this a lot, how adventure for people of our age freaked us out. The idea that there's this secret, like the day I found the secret, you know, uh, you know, by Warren Robinette was like, as a kid, it just blew my mind. I felt like I'd found like pirate treasure or something. And adventure for me summed up, and it's mentioned in the book, and it's clearly a huge influence on Ernie, um, and he's a, you know, it's Hari fanatic. Um, and I just felt like it was too perfect of all the things, if we were gonna play one game, that was the perfect game because it's about the creator trying to leave their signature in their work and hiding it. And, I, and it, it, there's almost a contest to do it. It just seemed like, and, and I will say that um, Atari Game Over was an incubator for Ready Player One. Um, uh, Christy McCosco-Krieger, who's the producer and um, Adam Stockhausen, the production designer, watched Atari Game Over before we even started and used a lot of it as inspiration and, and me and Ernie were like bathing in, in the, it sounds horrible, but like bathing in the Atari juices of it all. And, and absolutely, I would not have written, I wouldn't have written a good script, I don't think. And I certainly, I think it was very inspiring to me and even to some other people, the experience of making that movie just was like the perfect proving ground for some of the ideas in Ready Player One. And, and it also brought me and Ernie close together, which was good because I think things always go better when the various creators, when they're all on the same wavelength, you know, it's not the way it's done in Hollywood, but it should be. But like when the book's author and the screenwriter and the director and the production designer and the producer, if everybody is kind of seeing the same thing, you know, you know, there's something good, but an adventure just feel, felt like, it's just the facts of adventure. You know, adventure was our Werner Herzog, you know, like the facts of Werner Herzog make him who he is. Like he did actually do those things. So it's, it's not like we made them up, that's true. Adventure is a game that has a history, unlike Joust, which is a great game, but doesn't have a history like this. Adventure has a history of a, it's the first puzzle, it's the first Easter egg, you know what I mean? It's just too perfect to not use. So, uh, and it was fun also being like, that was one thing I had a lot of, you know, expertise in is how to hold your joystick and what to do when you're playing adventure, you know, because on the set we needed to do some of that. So, um, but yeah, uh, all of that and that experience 
we would comment all the time on how surreal it was and how relevant it was to what we were doing. And I think a lot of that love came out in the movie too, um, you know, was really reconnecting with that past, you know, cause I was playing, you know, I've been playing video games my whole life. I don't play Atari anymore. I play on an Xbox or, so, you know, to me, it was, it was great to go back to that. And it was definitely like the perfect place to prepare for, you know, what became like a four year adventure, you know, of writing and then working with Steven and making the movie. Bop, bop, bop.